begins. And the one of the points that Paul is making and how the spiritual gifts are being to be used during the time period that they lasted is that they were supposed to be used for the edification of the Christians, to build them up spiritually. And that means that uh, speaking in tongues without an interpreter, that's not edifying, that's not uh, uh, spiritually uplifting, so they shouldn't uh, do that. And the prophecy is much more profitable because it's understandable. Um, And he continues talking about that. It looks to me like the Corinthians really liked the bright and shiny gifts, the ones that attracted attention, the ones that seemed really amazing to them, and so forth. So, uh, would somebody read chapter 14, verses 13 to 19? Therefore, when you speak in a tongue, I pray that you may enter. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, my mind is unworthy. What is the outcome of this? I shall pray with the spirit, and I shall pray with the mind also. I shall sing with the spirit, and I shall sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless the spirit over you, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say amen? And it's just so fun to sing. 
or are we thinking about the benefit uh, to others in, in the singing? You know, are we trying to pick out songs and sing them in a way that will build people up? Or, this, or just, this is a cool song. You know, are we thinking about the content, the meaning, the message of the song? And focusing on how that's helpful to us in building us up and praising God. When we pray, you know, we can kind of try to display ourselves, you know, sound eloquent and impressive and all that. Or are we trying to pray with a view to helping our brethren express themselves to God? When we teach, when we, when we make comments in Bible classes, we can do that for a lot of reasons. Show off our intellect and our intellect and our scholarship. We can we can do it to try to cause trouble. You know, you some people make comments just because they like to be a thorn in the side of the teacher and they want to you know stir things up. You know, uh, things like that. Those are not the reason to, to do that. We need to constantly be thinking what would help our brethren, what's going to build them up, strengthen, them, and so forth and so on. In, in our worship service, then in our in our Bible studies and things like that. We're focused on how can we be helpful to other people's spiritual growth. That needs to be the goal in our mind. Thoughts and comments on this section? Yeah, Jason. Please. Understand, 
if it's in a, the spirit, it's with a tongue they don't understand. I think that's really the distinction. Talk. I think could be, because I think this could be a prophecy. I'm not sure that he's limiting us to that. You know, even speaking something that has been previously prophesied and now we're just passing it on or teaching it or exhorting based on that, I think could also fit that. But I'm not sure if he's thinking of, you know, a spiritual gift that communicates in an intelligible language or is including those other things. Verse 20, verse 26, 
But also maybe he's trying to emphasize their common family bond because he's going to say something rather stinging here. He says, do not be children in your thinking. In evil, yes, but be mature in your thinking. You know, to focus on building up the body is mature. To be concerned with this competitive displays of tongues is really challenged. You know, children like to draw attention to themselves. They look for showy things to impress. They like things that are shiny or move or make noise. And uh, I'm afraid the Corinthians were kind of affected by that. They were sort of childish in the things they really liked and treasured and, and were attached to. And uh, so he's saying, grow up in your thinking. This is not childish display that we need to, to focus on. And, and then, this is a very complex passage here. In verse 21, he says, If the law is written by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me. Now, you might not expect that the context this comes from. This is where I'm going to start five sentences at once. Let me say this. When the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it's very important for us to understand the Old Testament context to really get the point of the use of the quote. It's a lot like we would do. When, when passages we're really familiar with, we would pick up a snatch of it, but we would intend for you to understand the whole passage. So somebody might say, you know, do you think that you have to be immersed to be baptized? And we might say, well, yeah, you remember that Ethiopian eunuch? Well, what we really are talking about is how they both went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized, and they came back up out of the water. But when I said that, many of you immediately went to that. You knew what I meant by that. Uh, and we'll do the same thing, quoting a, a verse or part of a verse. But we don't mean just those words. We mean what they meant in their context. And sometimes if we only look at quotations in the New Testament context, we'd be surprised to go back to the Old Testament context and figure out what they were talking about. Every once in a while, in fact, you go back and you look at it, you're like, you took that out of context. Well, that's almost always because we miss the point that the New Testament writer was making. We thought he was saying one thing, and if we actually look at the function of the quotation in the Old Testament passage, we'll understand it differently and understand what he means the New Testament better. I believe that the New Testament writers use the Old Testament quotations in context, and the context helps. So when we go back to Isaiah 28, here's the setting for this that I think makes a lot of difference in understanding what he's saying. The setting is that Israel was very wicked and God was going to punish them. And Isaiah was a preacher of righteousness. In fact, you remember the term Isaiah always used for God? The Holy One of Israel. And the Israelites got tired of hearing about their holy God. And in fact, in one point, just a little later, uh, they say in 30 verse 11, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. <laughs> They're tired of listening to all the holiness that God expects them to have. And they, they feel like Isaiah's teaching is really simplistic. He had a lot of laws and orders and commands and things like that. And so they say in Isaiah 28, 9, to whom would he teach knowledge and to whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just ate from the breath? That's like we're a bunch of babies. For he says, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. It's just like one thing after another. Oh, they're so tired of listening to this elementary stuff about doing what God says and he expects you to be holy and he'll judge you if you don't and all that. It's just so boring. Well, God said you want something a little more sophisticated. You know, you're a little tired 
this elementary business? Well, verse 11, indeed, he will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. That's something more exotic for you. You're, you're, you're tired of this elementary stuff? God will use a foreign language to talk to you. Of course, what he meant was the language of the Assyrian invaders. Since they've rejected Isaiah's message about the Holy One of Israel, he'll talk to them with the language of the Assyrians. And uh, he who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary, and here is repose, but they will not listen. They wouldn't listen to God's offer to give them rest. So they're going to ultimately, in verse 13, go and stumble backward, be broken, snared, and take captive. That's where that's going to lead so I, uh, Paul picks up on that quotation and the law is written by men of strange tongue by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people and even so they will not listen to me says the Lord God was going to speak to the Israelites in a foreign language the Israelites were unbelievers in God really at that point and so the Assyrian language was going to be a sign to this unbelieving nation. He says here, in 22, so then tongues are for a sign. Not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Really, it's no mark of God's favor to have teachers whose language you don't understand. God used these foreign languages in Isaiah as a sign to this unbelieving nation. And in the same way, God is speaking to these Corinthians in the, these tongues. They gloated in that. They thought that was a glory. And they didn't realize this was really a sign of judgment on the unbelievers in Isaiah's day. And so he, he takes from that the purpose of tongues is to be assigned unto leaders. Now, in the New Testament, there were times that tongues were actually assigned to confirm the message to unbelievers. Like in Acts 2, when they were able to speak in tongues, the unbelievers could hear that, because they lived in those various countries. They understood that the speakers were Galileans, and they, they, this was a sign that God was speaking. But when they in Corinth were using the tongues like they were just Bethlehem, everybody talking some language that was different, nobody understood any of them. He says in verse 23, Therefore if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're mad? I mean... Tongues are, are really for unbelievers, but the way they were abusing the tongues, all they do to unbelievers is make them think you're crazy. You know, this chaos would mean that the unbeliever would think they're possessed or they're berserk. They make for the exodus, exodus as quickly as they could. Whereas prophecy, which is primarily to build up the believers, but the prophecy, if an unbeliever or ungifted man enters, he's convicted by all, he's called into account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he'll fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. With the, the pro prophecy of, of speaking the message of God, it would rip away their mass. And really bring them to conviction and, and to humble themselves. So, so look at what he's saying. God's intention is tongues are assigned to unbelievers, prophecy to believers. They abuse the tongues and they use the prophecy. The prophecy does a better job of convicting the unbelievers, something he wasn't even really for, than the tongues do. When they abuse the tongues and use them improperly, the tongues don't, the only sign they are to an unbeliever is that you're crazy. So, so even prophecy that wasn't primarily for unbelievers does a better job of convicting unbelievers than the abused tongues do. So he's really told them a lot of things in this section. He's saying that speaking in tongues is not necessarily a good thing. And if you hear a foreign language you don't understand, that can be a real bad sign. But that tongues are a 
one way or the other. But the only thing that they're doing for the unbelievers in Corinth, the way they're misusing the tongues, is making the unbeliever think they're crazy. The prophecy really is doing a better job of convicting the unbeliever, even though it's mostly for the believers. Any confrontation with God's word, if we've got an honest heart, really is disturbing and makes us be convicted and humble ourselves before God. You might think about this. When you're preaching to an unbeliever or teaching an unbeliever, it's necessary that the word confront him and reveal his sin and guilt. Don't, sometimes we're like, don't say that. Somebody might feel guilty of that. They'd be offended. You know, so we don't want to say anything about any sinful behavior because well, I've got a non-Christian visitor and, 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 and they do that. Well, ultimately, we've got to be brought to conviction about our sins to come to the Lord. You know, the gospel is not some reassuring word of self-affirmation. The gospel is given to bring us to faith and repentance. We've got to hear the message that convicts us. So, if we're just like, I don't want to ruffle anybody's feathers, let's not talk about lying, because I've got some friends that lie. Let's not talk about drinking, because I've got some friends that drink. Let's not talk about, you know, adultery, because i got a bunch of friends that commit that, and all that, and we don't want to offend them. We don't want to make them feel, them feel uncomfortable in our church, or whatever. Wait a minute. We need to feel uncomfortable about our sins. We need to be brought to conviction. We need to have the Word really used as a mirror to help us see how lost we are and how much we need God's grace. I'm not talking about some sort of just bitter, cynical kind of speech. I'm talking about plain Bible teaching that you had all through the Bible that would convict honest, humble sinners of their need for the Lord. So, what he really says in this section, I think, is that prophecy works better on the unbeliever, even though that wasn't his primary function, than the tongues did the way the Corinthians were misusing those tongues. That's a complicated section. That's what I understand about it. Thoughts and comments. Eric. Good point. I can see that. Other thoughts? Jason? Can you comment on in, uh, Paul referencing the law? This is written in the law, but this is a quotation from Isaiah. Because I typically think of Jesus in the law. Just using some general sense? I think it's appropriate for us to use the term the law for everything in the Old Testament. I do agree there are penalty passages talking about the law and the prophets, or the law and the writings of the prophets, and there they're distinguishing between the particular um, divisions of the Old Testament law. But you've got passages like Psalm 10 that even call the Psalms the law. It's written in your law. So I think there's one sense in which the law just refers to all the Old Testament. Other thoughts and comments? think there's anything any more complicated than this and the rest of uh, First Corinthians. So uh, you can come back to uh, come back to now and uh, listen to the rest of this. Uh, Twenty six to forty. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a song, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two, or at the most three, and each in turn, one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. But you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. 
For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I wrote to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues. All things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. Okay. So, in general, in this passage, he's giving some specific instructions as to how these spiritual gifts are to be used, but they're based on principles. Principles like order and self-control and edification especially. Edifying others is almost like the litmus test for what we do in worship. Everything needs to be beneficial for the spiritual growth of the brethren. This is against them, worship being an ego trip for somebody up front. It's against rivalries and competition for airtime. You can almost get this picture of a, a church with a lot of excited people all trying to talk and show what they can do at the same time, trying to get attention, trying to outshout the other one. Paul's against all of that. He wants order, decorum, because it, it edifies. It, it's more intelligible. Uh, Paul then lays down some ground rules. But his basic concept in these ground rules is doing something that's edifying, that's understandable. Now, he says in 26, what's the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, and a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, interpretation, let all things be done for edifying. In their assemblies, it wasn't that just one man got up front and filled up the whole time. There were a variety of edifiers. I think that is what God intends. I don't think he intends for uh, worship to be a one-man show or something like that. Uh, but there's an opportunity given for various ones to, uh, to edify. But how do you do it? You need to do it for edification. So, all right, somebody speaks in a tongue. What are the rules? Well, only two or three. I think he means only two or three per service. So no more than three at the most. Tongue speakers in a service. And each in turn. I mean, they don't talk at the same time. You know, it's one by one. And there's got to be an interpreter. If there's no interpreter, he's to keep silent in the churches. Now, clearly, that the tongues are not some kind of uncontrollable experience. You know, that uh, overpowers or possesses you and you just couldn't help yourself. You had to speak in tongues. You were able to keep silent if you chose to. You know, and so he didn't want things getting out of hand. He wasn't trying to drown somebody out. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit also. So control yourselves in two or three max for service, one at a time, and only with an interpreter, so that the tongue is understandable. What about prophesying? Well, he says in verse 29 that two or three prophets speak, so only two or three prophets for service. And let others pass judgment. The prophecies are to be evaluated. The prophet's words were not to just be blindly and uncritically accepted. The prophets were not infallible in the sense that they could speak a message out of their own head. If they spoke by revelation, it was exactly true. But someone else was to, who had a spiritual gift was to uh, carefully weigh what was said and make sure that it really is a prophecy from God. Now, if, if the first century church was to test inspired prophets, how much we should be testing uninspired preachers and teachers today. And he says, if a revelation is made to another who's seated, the first one must keep silent. Um, so, you yield the floor to the new revelation. God must have wanted the next guy to take priority or he would have waited to reveal the truth. I think the idea is, A, it's good to have a change of edifiers. It's good for various ones to speak. 
and B, we shouldn't try to hog the spotlight. We shouldn't try to filibuster, and once we get up front, then we talk as much as we can, because we just want attention. This is against the desire for attention. It's against the desire to try to display ourselves in worship. Uh, only a limited number could be profitably heard, so two or three, and in turn, and if somebody in the pew gets a revelation, you be quiet and let him speak. Um, it's not, not a one-man show here. And, and he says, for you can all prophesy one by one, two or three per service, but one by one ultimately, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. In other words, you can't use inspiration as an excuse, I just couldn't help myself. Spirit came over me, I just had to talk. I just had to speak. He said, no. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Control and order and discipline are fruits of the Spirit as well. So he says, God is a God, not a God of confusion, but of peace. The character of God should be reflected in the character of worship. Disorder, chaos, that doesn't come from God. That's not a part of his nature. And then, he says, the women are keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it's improper for a woman to speak in church. Now, people do all kinds of things to try to invade this text. One of the best commentaries I know on 1 Corinthians is written by, essentially, a Pentecostal, who does not agree with this, these two verses. He just says they're not in the original text. Now, he bases that on the fact that there's a handful of manuscripts that have these verses a few verses later. Every single manuscript we have, as I understand, has the words. There are very few that have them in a different place. He says they're not supposed to be in there at all. It's an easy way to avoid something, but it's not a responsible one. But it is difficult. Um, and so he says the women are to keep silent in churches. Now, when he says to keep silent, not to speak, think of that in terms of what we've been seeing. There were times when a tongue speaker was not to speak. There wasn't any interpreter. Times when a prophet wasn't to speak, when somebody else got a revelation. Uh, so not speaking means not to speak out and address the group. We're not talking about, say, whispering to your child some instruction. That's not speaking out to address the group. We're not talking about singing together with other Christians. That's not speaking out to address the group. We all sing together many voices, but they're blended. Um, but he is saying she can't even ask a question, which you'd really think, well, okay, she can't speak and, like, give a message. But he's broader than that. He says, not even ask a question. Let her do that at home. And he says that the law also says, which is kind of a puzzle, where did the law say anything about women speaking in women speaking in churches? I suspect he means the general position of women, like from Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, an application of that is for the women not to speak in the churches. Now, that just doesn't seem right to us sometimes. You know, it's like, wow, I mean, women are smart. Well, nobody said they weren't. Women know the Bible. Nobody said they didn't. But there are times when God makes choices. Remember when Korah uh, and uh, Dathan and Abiram uh, got upset that Moses and Aaron, they thought, were taking too much responsibility, but they were holy too, and they thought they ought to be priests as well, and God made an example out of them when they did that. Um, you know, we have to respect God's choices. And so God shows for in the church assemblies, it should be the, the men that do the speaking to address the group, not the women. And that seems to fit with the roles God has given women. Now he concludes in verse 36, Was it from you the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? Are you the starting point of the gospel? Are you like the authors of the gospel so you can lay down the rules? I mean, who do you think you are? Do you think you've got a monopoly on the gospel? You know, you're not the be-all and end-all of all gospel ministry. But it's like they thought they were, and they thought they could set the rules. He says, you know... It's, it's kind of funny. In all the other churches of the saints, God 
ones that have really heard the true message. You know, are you are you in? Because none of the other churches practice this. And, and think about how we are. What if we come along and take, say, what he said about women and say, ah, yes, I didn't like that, you know. Or, no, nah, I don't agree with that. Well, who am I not to agree with? You know, the gospel didn't start with me. It's not going to end with me. You know, I've got to humble myself before what the Lord says. And he says then that those who are uh, a prophet or spiritual need to recognize in verse 37 that what I write are the Lord's commandments. So he's emphasizing that the, the things that he wrote this a lot. If anyone thinks he's wise, if anyone thinks he knows anything, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, if you really think you have some understanding, well you need to recognize, first of all, that what I'm writing are the Lord's commands. And if not, you'll be rejected. You know what Paul says is the gospel that God is revealing through him. What he says is authoritative for them and for us. And so he ultimately says, all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. If you do things in an orderly, non-chaotic way, it edifies and it glorifies God. It's not distracting. He's not saying that we've got some, have some kind of format where every Sunday we do exactly the same thing, but we can't have different people talking at the same time and and a chaotic spirit in, in the worship. It needs to be organized. It needs to be an orderly thing that's edifying and understandable. That's what I get out of that. That probably brings up some things for conversation. I don't know, but th- thoughts and comments, questions. Okay, that 
that's a good question. What about, should, should this be translated wives or women because it speaks of their husbands? Um, the word itself can mean either one. I don't see a particular logic to the idea that wives should be silent but single women shouldn't. So it seems more reasonable to translate as women as that. And then if a woman has a question, let her ask her husband at home. Clearly if she's a single woman, she's going to have to ask some other man. But the, the appropriate setting to get those questions answered would be the home and not the church itself. That would be the way I would look at that. Serving in other ways, and so forth. 
So I think we need to try to make sure that we don't imagine that the primary service we have is before the group. There are many services we perform as members of the body. So going back to the women, so like all the women should keep silent in churches. And I'm thinking like in worship, right? So if the church is having a congregational meeting, and now I get like in the men's meeting, the elders, they decide whatever it is that's going to happen, right? In the congregational meeting, they're asking for input. Like are women allowed to speak there? Or what are your thoughts in particular? I think those are all very good questions. We're trying to understand what's the extent of the church. When he says that women are to keep silent in the churches, it's improper for women to speak in church. Really our question mark is what's the definition? And I don't know the answer. I think you can certainly make a case for this being a worship context and not a congregational meeting discussing the affairs of the church. I think you can certainly make a case for that from the sense that 1 Corinthians 14, the context seems to be a worship assembly. So I think that's a distinction that could be reasonably made. I'm not going to argue that that is, that we shouldn't apply it other ways. But I can see how somebody could say in the context the church here refers to the worship assembly. There was a question about singing and
Okay, the question is in verse 23, when the whole church assembles together, is that relevant here as opposed to a subset of the church that's assembling for a specific purpose? Perhaps. Luke. I mean, I'm guessing it is the same thing as verse 23. That when you when the whole church assembles together, and then when he says, What's the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble or when you come together, that he's actually still talking about the same idea.
the question is, the question about women adding announcements, and uh, the question would be, you know, does this fit this definition of, of being in the church, and uh, time which shall be silent. Uh, you know, at New Salisbury, it was said, do any of the men have an announcement to make? At Barbersville, generally, people don't make announcements to the pew. It's normally said, if you've got an announcement to make, see the afterwards. Uh, that may be a lot of reasons that that's a good thing. Uh, so I, I think that's the question. I, you know, I mean, I, obviously, I'm not the definitive response on these things or on anything else. I'm more wanting us to hear perspectives, to see the different points, for us to be able to go home and study and seek to come to our conclusion what we believe God is really wanting. Jason, to your point about the law going back to Genesis and related passages back to the created order. Let's say the law is supposed to be created order, so maybe that's what we're Good point, yeah. First Timothy 2, the law, he went back to the creation, and so it's not perhaps with his reference to the law.
Lots of things to think about. You know, we're not coming up with some uh, creed at the end, but things for you to consider and seek to apply. It's helpful to hear other people's perspectives. I don't always agree with them. You don't either. We have varying perspectives, but it's good to listen and then they can seek to follow what the scriptures teach. Other thoughts? such global terms of edification. Just is this something that's building on my brother? Is it teaching my brother? Is it communicating with something helpful to me? Why don't we take a break for about 15 minutes and then we'll uh, work on chapter 15, which is